Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the 147 podcast with me, sports MC Phil Seymour, and him, the former Triple Crown winner and snooker world champion, the magician, Sean Murphy. And that's right, I am fresh home from Scotland from the final of the Scottish Open last night. When did you get back to Ireland, Sean? About three weeks ago, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Philip. Yes. Um... Thank you very much. Yes, I got back to Ireland a little bit earlier than I had intended to. Mr. Scott Donaldson sent me packing with an unbelievable performance, it has to be said. An unbelievable snooker. It was just yeah. snooker from the gods. He played very well. The old potting prince of Perthshire played very well, didn't he? Uh, he had a good day that day. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? It really is, yeah. yeah. No, no more is that a nickname for me. <laughs> but there you go. But anyway, yeah, it's been a great weekend. It's been, well, it's a, it was a great Scottish Open, to be honest. Back in Scotland for the first time in ages, having been in Milton Keynes and Clandidno and and different places, and the crowds up there loved it. I mean, it was it was well supported, and they were lively, they were friendly. It was in Edinburgh, which it's not been in Edinburgh for ages and ages and ages, and yeah, it was a really really great event. But we're going to we'll talk about that shortly. But first of all. Thank you to everyone for the kind comments on the last podcast. And wow, we not only got in the Apple Sports podcast charts here, but I think we got in the top 30 in India, in the top 20 in Pakistan. Now, I don't know who's listening to us in India and Pakistan, if I'm honest. I've got absolutely no idea. But thank you for listening. Thank you for getting us in the Apple charts over there, because that is phenomenal. I know snooker's big over there. You've played in India, Sean, haven't you? Yeah, a few times, yeah. Of course, it's the home of snooker. If you believe the, uh, the accepted uh, birthing story of the game, that's where snooker comes from, a little place called Uti, 
uh, where it was one of the old, um, I don't know, barracks or something to do with, you know, one of the outposts there. But the game was created on the a billiard table in a in the Ooty Club, which is still there. Mm. Not sh- I'm not sure that the table that's there is the original table. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, I must admit, I've loved my trips out to India. A uh, fabulous country with lovely people. And, um, yeah, uh, if it's if it was based on the amount of uh, takeaways had over the years... <laughs> That would definitely that would definitely be a good reason to be in the top ten. We should also be in the top ten of uh, all the Chinese. Yeah, and the, uh, and the Turkish and the Italians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, thank you. Anyone that's li- that is listening to us over there, thank you very much. It's getting the charts over there was uh, pretty incredible, really. So anyway, so let's talk about the last couple of weeks. We've got to begin with the Scottish Open um, final last night. Gary Wilson, Joe O'Connor. Now it was the first time in a very very long time since two players outside of the, the top 16 or the top the top 32, I think, have competed in a ranking event final. In fact, the last time, I believe, was the last time there was a final in Edinburgh, which is bizarre that we were back there after so many years. But two players, really, um, before last night, Gary Wilson has to be up there, probably with Jack Lizowski, in the discussion of who's the best player not to have won a ranking event, um, which he now has. And and he did very well, actually, I thought. Very well. Uh, you know, credit to both players. You know, both um, didn't come from nowhere. You know, you couldn't say that because people have, you know, know who they are, of course. And of course, Gary wasn't his first final. Of course, everyone remembers his run to the semis of the Worlds a few seasons ago. Um, so, yeah, not from, not from you know, obscurity. Um, of course, he and I had that sort of infamous match at the start of the season where I actually potted the black to win the match. Uh, and went in off in the middle pocket. And um, the result of that match aside, uh, you know, Gary played really well there. There were really good signs, you know, months ago. I think that was the British Open. So it's no surprise to me to see him uh, kick on and, and, and do well. Um, Joe O'Connor, on the other hand, you know, fabulous, fabulous player. Um, burst onto the scene a few seasons ago with some good wins. I think I think he beat John Higgins well in a home nations event somewhere along the lines. Uh, and sort of serve notice to everybody. Not done a great deal since then. Obviously, you know, started in pools, converted to snooker, uh, as is the way, you know, certainly with a lot of players from the Leicester area, as I, I think he is. Um, and great to see, I saw some tweets about it, and I suppose I agree. It's great to see two players who, you know, aren't normally in that situation uh, getting to vie for the title. And it has to be said, they were the best players of the week. There was no question about that. Uh, and in the end, I think, you know, Joe was... Uh, he was bang on the money. He just didn't settle in the final. Uh, and Gary, a little bit more experienced at that end of an event. Uh, he played very, very well and uh, fully deserved the win. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I think Joe's made a lot of fans, actually, this weekend, um, in this this last week. The way that he's played the game, the way he's approached it, the way he carries himself. You know, in, in you listen to him in interviews, he's a very likeable lad. Um, very, very, very good kid. Very hardworking, very nice guy. Um, you know, like I say, he's made a lot of fans... For me, if you look at the two semi-finals, the two semi-finals spoke volumes. Joe O'Connor up against Neil Robertson. You know, Neil, Neil is it? He, he had a heavy cold again, but but Neil is you know he's, he's top level. He's right up there. And Joe, Joe, the last few frames in particular was just phenomenal. That break of forty-seven to go four-three up in the seventh frame was out of this world, and it was only forty-seven, but. He had no idea. He came off, and I said, "You know, people are saying that's the best break they've ever seen." He's like, "Which one?" <laughs> you know, he, he he didn't seem to realize the importance of it. And then, well, 
Gary Wilson against Tep Chaya, the you know the second half of that semi final, he just blew Tep Chaya away. He, you know he he blew him off the table. He was fantastic. So you're right, they're, they're two probably unfancied players before the event, but they very much deserve to be in that final. And yeah, Gary got that first ranking title, which was really lovely to see actually. And don't we always say, of course, this is the snooker podcast that isn't a snooker podcast, you know, for, for, for all the for all the non-snooker listeners out there, you know, that, that tune in and download. Um, it's, I thought it was great to see two players, as I say, who, who wouldn't normally be at that end of an event, putting it up to everyone else and, and showing that it's not just the marquee names. It's not just the, you know, if you ask a, a random person in the street to name 10 snooker players, it's not just those people that can play these shots and these crazy positional shots and exhibition shots. All the players are capable of it on their day. And I was, you know, once my own involvement in the event was over, um, you know, I was thrilled to see someone go on and, 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 and as I say, pick up their first ranking trophy. Life-changing for Gary Wilson. He's now a winner. Gets him in, you know, World Grand Prix, players' champs, possibly tour champs, champion of champions next season. And, and bumps him way a, lot, a long way up the world rankings. Could be life-changing that week in Edinburgh. Uh, and for, for Joe O'Connor, you know, boosts his confidence for the rest of the season, a real shot in the arm for, you know, what's 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 left for, for, of his year. Yeah, definitely. I, I had a chat with them both afterwards, and I said to them, you know, it's this this has shown the level you're at. It's shown where you are and where you should be. And, you know, it, it, they are at that level. That That is where they should be. And uh, they thoroughly, thoroughly deserved it. I've got to say, I got asked to do the uh, the live in arena interviews on Eurosport Discovery Plus afterwards, which is slightly unnerving. Okay, after what happened at the British Open last year, when Gary Wilson lost to Mark Williams, Rob went in and interviewed him, and it's fair to say Gary was not in the best of moods and didn't interview particularly well that day. And I was just like, "Oh, Gary, please win," because I need a happy Gary Wilson when I got there to talk to him. I don't want that happening to me. So it was like, "No, please." Anyway. That was a Scottish Open. It was brilliant. It was great up there. The venue was really good. The fans loved it. It was fantastic. You talk about the uh, losing interviews, though. There's a, there's, there's a bit of that going round, isn't there, at the moment? If you, there's, a, there's a little bit of that I've noticed on social media in recent times, certainly this week. Um, like Judd, Judd's getting a little bit of a, a reputation as, as not giving the best post-match interviews, and I see both sides of the equation. There's been a lot of support for him in terms of well, it's nice to see that it, you know how much it means to him, and he's very disappointed. And the the other side of the coin is, um, you know, where you've got to be professional and, and and carry the game, and you know, be the bigger person, and 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 you know, just take it on the chin. Like, where do you stand on that? Because you're there on the ground. I've always thought losing interviews are really, really awkward. They're they're, they're pretty awkward because you're looking at someone's professional in what they do. They go out there to win, and within seconds of losing, they get a microphone thrust in the face. Now, I think if it's a final, I think it's a little bit different because you're in the arena, you've got all the fans around you, and you got to the final. If it's in an earlier round, I actually think it's really harsh. Someone said to me years ago, um, you show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. If if losing doesn't hurt, winning winning doesn't feel as good. You know, it's, it's highs and lows, isn't it? And... I think it's really difficult. If if I just you know had a had a bit of beating on something and then someone thrust a microphone into my face, I probably wouldn't give the best response either. If I'm honest, but you're right. You know you've got to do these interviews and you've got to be professional in them. I thought Joe O'Connell last night was brilliant. You know mm. he was, but it was a different situation. He was it was his first ranking event final. He was very very happy to reach the final as he should be as well. He'd, he'd done himself and his family very very proud. 
Judd losing in a, in an earlier round, you know that that's not what he wants or expects. So if you then assume after that, you know he's he's going to be unhappy, isn't he? But I suppose it's just different characters. Some some players like yourself, for example, you can just sort of flick that switch a little bit, be professional. I'm sure afterwards, you know, the interview finishes, you come out, and I'm sure you're as annoyed as anyone, but. You know, you you have that ability to switch and be professional. Some players just don't have that. Some players, I think, wear the heart on the sleeve a little bit more. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it's really difficult for me. You know, I've interviewed Jack Lizowski after his his last two ranking event finals. And that was really harsh. So I think he broke the record for the most ranking event finals without winning one. And going into that interview, I was a bit nervous because you think, you know, this isn't nice for the lad, is it? He's, you know, he obviously didn't want to lose that final. He, want, he wants to win one and... He keeps losing and keeps losing, but thankfully Jack's the kind of character that he's 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 pretty all right anyway. He's a quite cool guy, so he he just talks normally. What do you think? I think it's really hard. I think I think we're one of the few sports that carry these flash interviews straight after a. You know, well, certainly in modern times, it's become it's become sort of the thing to do, hasn't it, across all sports? But um, yeah, I, I don't want to be too critical because you know we, you come off these matches having lost. Uh, especially if you're expected to win or it's the the final or whatever, you're absolutely gutted. You know, I'm 40 years of age, and when I lose a big game, you know, I lost the quarterfinals to Jack. Like, I was sick. You know, I was absolutely sick. It hurt like hell because I was playing well. I enjoyed it. It was, a, you know, I, was, I only had two chances. I made 67 and 111. Yeah. You know, I was, I was in great form that week and got absolutely destroyed. The same against Scott there in Edinburgh this week. I, I, you know, the match before, I had three centuries in four frames. I walked into Scott Donaldson and he just absolutely swept me aside. Like, I, you do your interview after. You've just got to do it with, with as much good grace as you can. Um, try and remember that you know there are young kids watching. They're looking up to you know to see how to behave, but but you can't be a robot all, all the time. And I and I wouldn't. I'm not suggesting anyone should should always say the right thing. Sure, isn't it only a year ago since I walked into the press room in York, having lost to an amateur, and all hell broke loose. Like you know, we've all made mistakes and we've all said things that we shouldn't have said in those heat of the moment press conferences. If you could have 20 minutes to calm down. Um, everything would be okay, but of course that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't suit the journalists, would it? Maybe if you just did what Judd did and just said one or two words, you wouldn't get in quite so much bother, Sean. That's maybe the key. It's too late for that, isn't it? <laughs> I'm past caring now. I'm forty. I'm past it. I'd say so. Now, well, yeah. Let, let's just talk about talking in the media then. Um, Murphy versus Billy Bobbins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right now, anyone that listens to this podcast, okay, knows that Sean and Mark Allen, Billy Bobbins, are really good mates. You know, you, you practice together, you socialise together, and everything else. On social media, you two have banter, you, you take the mic off each other. Now, there's been a big, big news write-up. I think it was on the Eurosport website. It was in, was it the Mirror newspaper, I think? And they had this whole thing where they, they showed tweets that you'd both put you know, having a go at each other, as they put it. They quoted a line from you from this podcast. They didn't name the podcast, by the way. Thanks for the plug, Mirror and Eurosport. Didn't name the podcast. But they're made out. Like, there's there's some real needle between the pair of you. And it's like, clearly, you've got to listen to the whole podcast, lads, because you've got this all wrong, haven't they? Yeah, I think what happened was uh, I, I, I tweeted something. I can't, I can't remember what I tweeted now. And he responded and said, oh... Uh, it must be that chip on your shoulder or something like that. It was very funny. 
but yeah, you're absolutely right. He and I would be, you know, very, very good friends, very, very close, you know, you know, on and off the circuit. Um, and it is just banter, but very lazy journalism of, of these of these guys and girls to, to be printing stuff like that um, with no real research into it. I don't think any of the snooker crew that we know, you know, from the media really had much to do with it. They would know that Mark and I, it was just a bit of a wind-up. But, um, yeah, hilarious. I mean, you know, someone was Mark texted me and said, like, can you believe you know, that it, it's in the mirror? You know? <laughs> I walked into the practice room and he was there and he said, oh, are we allowed to be in here together? You know, are we even allowed to shake hands now? It's just just madness. It just goes to show you, you know, we've all been hearing this for years, but you just can't believe everything that you read. No. You, you, you know, you have to just look into it a little bit. Uh, and, um, yeah, maybe a lesson to those those editors or those journos that printed these stories. Just do, just do, a, just do a small smidgen research i've got to say i was absolutely gutted they left my tweet out to be honest because mark put something about the chip on your shoulder and i said no that's not the case sean's a well-balanced man he's got chips on both shoulders both but they shoulders. didn't print it did they <laughs> they left that out completely anyway look anyone listening sean and mark they're you know there's there's a bromance there there's there's certainly no needle between the two of them so forget that one fake news but talking about your twitter um on a more much more serious note, over this weekend, you, you tweeted um, something very heartfelt, actually, that was that was very touching um, about a lady that you met in Dublin over the weekend. Um, something that upset you, and it's, it's a very serious point, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, of course, anyone who um, remembers that uh, weight loss challenge that you and I did uh, a couple of years ago now, we did it for Jesse May and we did it for... Um, kitchen for everyone in York, which yeah. is kind of along these lines. You know, I think this sort of thing of helping people uh, in need and homelessness and people on the streets, like, would be close to both of us. Uh, and um, you, you obviously can't help everybody, you know. It's certainly not, you know, civilians like us. We're not in a position to do much. Uh, and I was just walking through Dublin uh, completely unaware, and I'd been for a meeting in the city centre. I was walking back to my car, and uh, was approached by this woman on the street, and she had her children with her. And, um, you know, she started talking to me, and I gestured as if to say, oh, you know, I don't have anything for you. And she said, no, I, I, I'm actually, I actually don't want money. I, I, I'm desperate for some supplies for my baby and or need some milk and some nappies. And, you know, it, it just... I, I've since, obviously, I tweeted the story about it in the, in the days that, in the, the, that, that evening. I tweeted about it because it just hit me so hard. It, it just, it really got to me and it got to me that in this day and age, this type of thing's happening and it really upset me. So I just shared it, you know, you know, social media, it's meant to be social and um, works both ways. And I just thought I'll share something here. It's, it's hit me through the day. And I, I, can't, I just can't believe the response that the tweets had, you know, you don't do these things for attention or likes or retweets. Um, but the, it, it's fast become the most interacted with piece of social media that I've ever been involved in, including the J.K. Rowling uh, incident <laughs> a few weeks ago. It's, it's, it's blown me away. At last count, that one tweet had had over 4 million views uh, and had been interacted with over 300,000 times uh, and, you know, has gone around the world. It's, it's big news here in the Republic of Ireland. They've got me going on all the big talk shows and all the big radio shows this week um, to talk about it and 
you know, obviously a bit of a deeper look into life in Ireland. But it's um, it really hit me, you know, this poor woman with her children. And, of course, you get people on Twitter saying, oh, you know, this, this type of thing's a bit of a scam or it could be a con. Do you know, if it was, it's one of the best I've ever seen. Um, but you just, you're only in control of your actions, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just trying to do my best. Like you said, there, you, you don't post these things for likes and that kind of thing. You don't. Okay. Some people do. Some people do post these things for likes. And that, that really winds me up. That um, you don't. You, you could, you could read straight away from what you'd put that it was heartfelt. And for me, what it highlights is there's, there's tough times. There's tough times for a lot of people at the moment. There's tougher times to come as well. Um, so. Like you said, we're, we're, we're normal people. You know, there's not a lot we can do. The one thing we can all do is just just check on those that we know. Check on people we know because there's people you know, you know, the, the mental health issues and everything else, but there's financial issues too. And I would hate to think of anyone I know being in that situation if they've got a baby that they can't afford milk for or nappies for or, or whatever. So just, you know, they are tough times for people. So just keep your eyes open for people that you do know. Um, and you know, if anyone is, then you know, look after him. That's that's all I'd say, really. I think it's it's important. And yeah, you mentioned Kitchen for Everyone there, you know, charity that I try and support whenever I can here in York. Um, you know, there's a lot of these charities now that have sprung up because they're needed, and they are needed. If you can support them, you know, please do so because they do some really really great work. But listen, it's a very very serious point. This isn't a very very serious podcast as a rule, so we will <laughs> leave it there. But listen, if anyone wants to go on, pop on Sean's social media feed, read the tweet. It's you know, it, it's it's pretty devastating to be honest. But um, as is most of Sean's social media feed, to be fair, yeah. but, the, but that one in particular really is being genuine. So anyway, let's let's move on. Right, a few things that have been in the snooker and sporting news in the last couple of weeks. One four seven hole in one nine data. That conversation has been flowing all over Eurosport and all over the internet. We are going to address it. Okay, this is still very much in the plan to address that with a very, very special episode at some point. That will happen. One of the other big talking points, talking points, even talking points, talking points is big pockets. People saying how big the pockets play at certain events on the tour. I think Willow at some point has said, oh, they're playing like buckets and everything else. Right, I want to address this. I, I spend a lot, far too much time stood next to tournament tables you spend probably less time than you should do playing on them, but, but plenty of time playing on them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see them. I play on the tables in the queue zone. Right. The pockets aren't big, but can you just explain a technical point? A lot of it is often to do with the cloth. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all to do with the cloth and the balls. Uh, um, so when we go to professional snooker tournaments, all the pockets are measured to templates, and the table fitters build the tables around those templates, and the pockets are the same size everywhere. Fact. Um, there's no getting away from that. Yep. The pockets perform more generously or less generously depending on how much friction there is between the cloth that's on the cushions and into the pocket and the balls. And that, and that friction uh, increases as the cloth wears and the balls become dirtier. So on day one, when the cloth is brand new, and it, when it leaves the factory, it's got like a bit of a sheen on it, so it's 
put on the table fresh. It's got that sheen, like freshly mown grass. The balls are brand new, straight out the packet. They've got a bit of a sheen out of them. They're factory new. So you've got all of the elements playing into your, um, you know, favour there to make the pockets appear to be more generous. As the tournament wears on, and let's take a Home Nations event as an example, when we get to the Friday come the quarterfinal day, those pockets have now had five or six days play on them all day, every day. Those cloths have worn now to the point where that cloth gets recovered for the semi-finals. A brand new cloth gets put on it. So anyone who watches these events will notice that some shots down the cushions that went in on day one, they're not going in on day five. And it's to do with that slide, isn't it? it the, the ball will almost slide off, as opposed to just bouncing at the natural angle off the cushion, it will almost hit that cloth and, and slide. Therefore, it's going to hit the jaw further towards the actual hole of the pocket, isn't it? Yeah, it gets into the back of the pocket more easily because the uh, cloth, as I say, has got this sheen on. Um, and uh, it's, it's a slightly oil-based sheen as it leaves the factory. It's actually a sheen, it's actually an oil that's on the cutting blade. So this cloth goes through a machine. Uh, Strawn spent fortunes on this machine to produce more cloth, and that blade that cuts the cloth to our standard length uh, is coated in an oil, and it leaves a residue on the cloth, which, as I say, is what we call the sheen. Uh, and, that, and that helps the ball slide into the pocket the pocket is the same size. It's regulation, templated, match table size throughout the event. That doesn't change. I can absolutely guarantee that. Um, but the pockets perform more difficultly as the tournament gets older. And then once you get to the semis, they put a brand new cloth on, brand new set of balls, and again, you'll start to see shots sliding into pockets that, that didn't before. So there you go. Hopefully we put that one to bed. Like I say, I spend enough time by them. I look at those pockets and I think they're not, they simply aren't. You know, they might look like they're playing big. They are not big. Right, that one's away. The other one people have been talking about is technology to put balls back after a miss. Now, I'm actually with them on this one. Um, it is a bit clunky. So referee calls a foul on a miss. They've got to put the balls back. And they, they go to the marker who's got the screen and back and forth and back. Move it left, move it right, move it up, move it down. And yes, it does. It takes too long. There was a solution back in China a few years ago. Um, was it like lasers on the table or lights on the table showing where the balls were? Um, but for whatever reason, it, it hasn't happened. Could be cost. It could be whatever. I don't know. But but what's your thoughts? Oh, it's only cost. That that's all it is. So in in, in China for the Chinese events, um, I, one of the Chinese broadcasters, I think. Uh, and, and this is my this is what I think it is. I, you know, I think it's a cost to the broadcaster. Um, they purchased this system, which you know, to within you know a, an, an acceptable degree of accuracy of a mil. You know, we're talking millimeters. Uh, can identify exactly where each ball on the table was. They take a still frozen frame of, of the table after every shot and can replace any ball to within you know half a mil. Then um, the tolerance is very very tight. Um, my, my understanding is the situation is that that system is available for broadcasters back here in Europe. Obviously, and we're talking about your Eurosports, ITV4s, ITVs and BBCs uh, to, to purchase that technology and to use it in the events here. I'm led to believe it's quite costly. Uh, and, and that's why we have the situation of, you know, referee and marker directing traffic 
as it were, um, when when these balls need replacing. It is part of the reason, just as an extension, it is part of the reason as to why I think the misrule now needs taking out of the game, this having the balls replaced business, uh, whilst we don't use the same tech as they do out in China. I just think it looks terrible. I feel as if I was new to the sport, tuning in at that moment, I'd think, geez, this doesn't look great. Um, so, yeah, it's one of the reasons. It's certainly by no means the biggest reason, but it's one of the reasons I'd like to see the misrule taken out of the game. So there you go. So forget the technology, just take the misrule out. There you are. Job <laughs> Pro- done. Problem solved, <laughs> job done. <laughs> there you are. Right. Okay, that's all the snookery bits out of the way, I reckon. I think it's just about time that we had Sean's rant coming up straight after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the 147 Podcast with Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to interact with us across all forms of social media at 147pod. That's the words, at 147pod. And just before we do this, we must, of course, talk mugs. The 321 Rant 147 Podcast mug is now on sale. The last time we did the podcast was in York. Um, I, I gifted Sean a 147 Podcast mug. He put pictures on social media. Loads of people said, oh, we'd like one of those. Are they for sale? Are they for sale? Well, they are now. Yeah, we decided we would put them up for sale. They are £8 plus postage, so they're not even expensive either. They're pretty cheap at that, I think. Are we, uh, are we millionaires yet? We're not millionaires. Yeah, you're sharing your post about a Rolls Royce. I messaged you straight after, didn't I? Yeah, we've not sold that many mugs. No, we're not millionaires. Can I order the Rolls Royce yet? No. <laughs> no, you can order a mug, though, if you like. So go on the 147 podcast social media feeds. We'll put another link up to get the mugs. If you order them now, you will get them for Christmas, okay? They, they are available now to get for Christmas as gifts. Sorry, if you... This Christmas, yeah. Yeah, this Christmas. If you want one for yourself, we will put those links on the social media feeds at 147pod, eight quid plus postage. It, you know, that's Christmas sorted for all the family, I'd suggest. Um, for the 147 podcast, 321 rant mugs. They are on sale. I will post links all across social media. But now, Sean, it is time... For me to say those words and for you to do your rant. Sean Murphy, the magician, are you ready? Ready. Three, two, one, rant. Right. 
the rant this time uh, is is a not not niche, but it's one of those things. As soon as I say it, everybody will go, "Yeah, you're absolutely right." You know, in life, you get those things. You say, "There's always one, isn't there? There's always one." It's like in a club. There's always one, and you roll your eyes. Well, this is one of those always one. This is about men, and it is typically men, always men, let's say that, who passed October into November time and into December as we are now, still wearing shorts <laughs> outside. <laughs> who are these absolute boneheads? Who are they? What are they doing with themselves? What have they done to their internal central heating system that the rest of us haven't managed to do? Are they aware it's freezing outside? Do they know how ridiculous they look? I was walking behind a man the other day in Edinburgh. He had shorts on, uh, a hoodie, a coat, and sliders. What is going on with this world? I know I'm a little bit old-fashioned. I accept it. I've made my peace with it. I'm not trying to be any different. But shorts in December? Come on. I mean, come on. What's next? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. From the sublime to the, to the ridiculous. My coach, Chris Henry, walks around in a heated gilet. That's how sensible he is. He can push a button and turn the gilet on to heat. He's like Iron Man. Meanwhile, your man's walking around Dublin this morning. I passed him in the car. He's got a big, big <laughs> coat and shorts. It's ridiculous. Wow. I'm with you. Do you know, I'm, I am... Disagree with me. No, Change my mind. I can't. Change my mind. Phil. I cannot disagree with you. I just, I love the fact that there was a guy wearing shorts... And a coat. <laughs> he had a full coat on. Do you know what? That that reminds me of, um, where was I? I was in, in a supermarket with a friend of mine. And there was a guy at the till and he had camouflage trousers and a high-vis vest on. And my <laughs> mate just walked around, walked around behind him and he goes, hey, make your mind up. Pick a side. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing, isn't it? Shorts and a coat. It makes no sense. It makes what absolutely no sense. Now, what are you doing? I'm glad you said men, because some kids do it. My my 15 year old son, he wears shorts pretty much all the time. Um, to be fair, he's he's absolutely huge. He's about six foot two and a half. So even when he wears long trousers, look like shorts. But he wears shorts all the time. Kids, fair enough, they're kids. Okay, they're probably going to go off and run or play rugby or something. But grown men give your head a shake. Shorts at this time of year, it's just wrong, fellas. I was in Edinburgh, and I'll tell you now, it was cold up there. It was cold, and I'm from the frozen waste of the north. So if I think it's cold, it's cold. So are you one of these men that wear shorts? Tell us why. If there is actually a reason, tell us why on social media, okay? At 147pod everywhere, why do you wear shorts at this time of year? And we're not talking about people who wear shorts indoors, right? You've got up, it's a nice Saturday morning, you've got nowhere to be, you throw your favourite T-shirt on and a pair of shorts. We're not talking about that talking about people who think it's okay to leave the house with shorts on in December. Unless your name ends with a Djokovic or a Nadal <laughs> or Neymar, it's completely unacceptable. But Go back upstairs and put some pants on. <laughs> those tennis players this time of year, they're in hibernation anyway. They've, they've tucked up for the, for the winter. They're, uh, 
they're well away from wearing shorts. So are you on these people? Or what do you think? Okay, do you look at these people and think, nutters wearing shorts? Let us know at 147pod across all forms of social media. Sean, I think you're going to get some support on that one. Anyway, right, just before we move on to listen to questions, just to say a thank you to um, to my mate, who's another Sean, actually. Sean Collins at the Maltings in York. We um, we did the last podcast. We, we popped out into York for a couple of shandies, didn't we, Sean? And um, we met up, met up with my friend Sean. He's pub the Maltings in York. We we spent the whole evening with him, as it turned out. Um, and we had a real good night, actually. It was it was quite a good laugh. And there was a funny moment at the end of the night when we were walking back to Sean's hotel, and I was going to get a taxi home. And there was, there was a, a chap that we met who he'd just come out of the Castle Snooker Club in York, carrying his queue. And it, it's fair to say it was the early hours of the morning. And this guy's walking along, and he looks up, and he went, you're Sean Murphy. And Sean looked at him and went, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was absolutely lashing it down, by the way, as well. It was brilliant. And Sean says to him, he says, he says have you just had a game? He says, yeah, a league game. How'd you get on? Oh, Drew 2-2. Two, two. Oh, well, that's luck next time. That's luck next time. And the guy said, no, no, you can't just go. I at least need a picture with you. And it's lashing down with rain. It's fair to say we'd had a drink or two. And it was like, what? And the guy got a picture and then we went. But it was just so funny that we just happened to bump into a guy carrying a snooker queue at whatever time it was in the morning in the middle of York. Brilliant. He, um, full disclosure now, he asked you to take the picture, didn't he? Or yeah, he office. did. Yeah, yeah, all right. Did you Enough. take a selfie? Did you take a selfie? I should have done, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I think he checked it actually just to make sure I hadn't done that because some people do that there do. he took that long he said can I have a quick photo I said yeah no problem he started fiddling with his phone I said come on mate it'll be breakfast time by the time you get that working <laughs> it was just so weird to bump into someone with a queue at that time anyway let's get on to our listeners questions we begin with Gabriel on Instagram right a serious one this actually Gabriel says what's a good city in the UK or Europe for a decent amateur player looking for plenty of local amateur pro-am competitions and affordable practice facilities. Sean? Yeah, I, I think um, I was thinking about this, uh, and I, I'm not 100% sure on prices, but I think somewhere like somewhere between Sheffield and Leeds would have to be very, very high on the list for me. I mean, the facilities in Sheffield with the academies that are there, obviously there are a couple there. There's a couple more on the on the back burner that are, that are due to come out here on the grapevine. You know, snooker academies in, in that part of the world are only going to grow and grow and grow. Um, so, so, of course, that's the home of snooker as well. And then you throw in Leeds with, like, the Northern Snooker Centre, um, you know, which, which is one of the best clubs in the country. I must just say, I meant to say this before uh, in the first half, um, between um, between the German Masters qualifiers and travelling up to Edinburgh, I went to the Northern Snooker Centre for two days, uh, working with the WPBSA coaching scheme. Uh, it was such an honour. I'd been asked to go as like a guest lecturer to go and help train the coaches of tomorrow uh, with you know some sort of you know really. I mean, they use the term advanced. Of course, I can't win a match at the moment, so I don't know how advanced it is. Uh, but um, it's really thrilling to be part of you know trying to help guide. Um, you know, coaches coming down the line, and we had two days there in the northern. So yeah, I can vouch for the facilities there. They've got lots of star tables, old Riley Silver Legs. The club's one of the you know old historic clubs of the country. Um, you, you, you multiply that by the academies in Sheffield, you do very well to find somewhere in certainly in England uh, and the UK. I'd have to say anywhere in the UK 
uh, better than that that part of uh, Yorkshire. There you go. So Sheffield Leeds, wait, it's quite funny actually. Gary Wilson tweeted, um, I think it was Saturday after he won his semi-final. He tweeted, uh, absolutely gutted, going to miss the pro-am in Leeds tomorrow. <laughs> and then I think he tweets after the final asking who'd won it after he'd, he'd won his first ranking title. He'll have... Um... He'll have only been half joking as well, you know, about the Brower. I mean, he'll have been gutted to him. It's like a wage to Gary that tournament. Oh, he loves them, doesn't he? He absolutely loves them. So there you go. So Sheffield he'll put it on his tax return. It's like a wage packet to him every week. <laughs> brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Right, let's move on. Right, Zach Smith on Instagram. Uh, what were your first part-time jobs, and do you have any funny stories about them? Well, you were a professional snooker player from the age of three when you left school, weren't you? So. Ah, no, I've got a couple of good little stories. Did you have any jobs, did you? Well, you go first, and I'll tell my story if they're anywhere near. My my first Saturday job was working for my dad in his his tailoring business in York. Um, I used to get £6 a day, but I only worked till 1 o'clock, so it's £6 for half a day, okay? And I I sacked him off. And you've been doing half days ever since? Absolutely, half day at a push. I sacked him off to go and work on York Market because a guy called Howard Lee would pay me £10... This is how my brain works, but for working the whole day, but at least I got a tenner as opposed to six quid, okay, in all weathers. So we were outside. He didn't, he what wasn't, was, what he, were you selling? What were you towels, selling? towels, bales towels. of towels. And do you know, what? he used to turn up in a van and we used to have to build the stall. So it wasn't one of the fixed stalls. We used to have build the stall, set all the towels up and everything else, you know, break it all down at the end of the day. Sell towels all day. The, he was a pitcher, was this guy. So he used to do all the spiel, all the talking to the crowd about everything. And he was brilliant. And we worked in snow, we worked in rain, we worked in wind, in all conditions. We were out there doing that for £10 for a day on a Saturday. And you know what? I, I'll, I'll tell anyone this. I learned more in that job than I have in any other job I've ever had. About everything, about work ethic, about life, about how you talk to people. I learned so much in that. So when you're 14, 15 years old, those jobs that you have then, actually, they start to mould you into the person that you are. Probably why I can now talk nonsense to crowds on a regular regular basis. I was actually going to say, as a serious point there, did you ever have a go at the whole, you know, stood there on the, not obviously selling the fruit and veg, but doing, did you ever, did you ever have a go at the announcing and uh, come and get yourselves now and three for a bit? Absolutely. Did you ever have a go at all that? Absolutely not. Do you know, the man was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He's very, very wealthy man, I believe as well. Um, but he was, I was going to say, did that, is that where you're perhaps your first, um, you know, having to go on to become a very successful sports MC? Is that where you had your first run-in with public speaking or public announcing? Well, I didn't do any of it, but I was there with it happening. And you you learn a lot from it. And and I honestly believe, you know, I think maybe the confidence to to speak and that kind of thing, I think a lot of that did come from that. You know, it it does, that does mould you. Those those jobs do mould you. And I went on from that. I got, you know, grew up a little bit, went worked in pubs, behind the bar. And again, you learn a lot about people when you're working in pubs. Um, And... Yeah, you know those those sort of early jobs. I I think you learn an awful lot from about about everything. But work ethic for me is a big one, and I think sadly a lot of people lack that nowadays, which is which is sad. Um, I see that you know in in a lot of the work that I do, and it's it comes from those early jobs. What about you then? What did you do? Well, um, I was, as you say, completely addicted and, and devoted to snooker. For the vast majority of my life. However, uh, when I was nine years of age, we moved into a very small house 
uh, on the high street in a village called Earthlingborough. That's where I grew up in Northamptonshire. And this little house was owned by the family who owned the Ford dealership next door to it. And they were called the Reading family. And their, their garage was called Central Garage. And uh, at the time, we had a, a Luton Transit van. That was our family vehicle. We used to do house clearances and stuff. And to help out, they sponsored me from being, I think, maybe nine or ten years of age. And they gave us a car. And it was, you know, in the trendy days of having your car sign written. It was, you know, Sean Murphy, local snooker player, sponsored by Central Garage. And their support, alongside uh, the support I received from Doc Martins and the family, the Max Griggs family that owned Doc Martins in the 90s, their support, along with their, their families, are the reason I'm sat here talking to you now. There's absolutely no question in my mind. Doc Martins were a huge help, and they've been talked about many, many times. But the Reddings, the father Jeff, and the three brothers, Paul, Andy, and Neil, without their support, I wouldn't be here right now. And they, they owned the garage next door. And there was this one particular summer... My my mum and dad were very keen for me to go out, and I think it was more my dad was like, right, son, you know, to, to, to sort of maximise your effort in the snooker world, I want you to go off and have a week working, like doing proper work, and you'll realise how lucky you are to be playing snooker. So I'm like 12 or 13. Uh, they've, they've packed me off to go and work in the garage for the week. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, I, I could sell ice to Eskimos, me. Like, you know, I'd be really good at this. Of course, they had me out hosing out the oil pit and you know doing all the horrible horrible jobs it was it was it was it was minging but it was great fun like, i loved every minute of it all with the mechanics and watching how they did things and learning and stuff i can remember to this day like it was great but on this one particular day my mum sent me in with my packed lunch like you know cheese and ham sandwich or whatever it was and some other bits and pieces and uh because they sponsored me and I knew them so well, you know, these are guys who I'm still friends with to this day. Um, I, I've gone and had my lunch. I did, wouldn't have my lunch with the workers. I'd have my lunch with the family who own the, who own the garage, like, you know. So I've gone into the office to sit down and have my lunch. I've never told this story before. And I sat down and I've opened my packed lunch. And in, in, my, in my ham and cheese sandwich was pieces of paper. One said ham and one said cheese. What? <laughs> and the father who owned the dealership, Jeff, he went absolutely ape. He got on the phone and he, bearing in mind we lived next door, he got on the phone and he rang my mother. And he <laughs> rang her, he said, Jean, uh, and my mum listens to the podcast, so she'll remember this story. Mum, you'll remember this. Um, he said, Jean, we're trying to teach your son the, our heart, you know, the ethics of hard work here. You're sending him in with packed lunches with pieces of paper and think it's a bit of a joke, making a mockery of what we're trying to teach your son. Well, his sons, the owners of the garage, are on the ground in the corner of the show because they've <laughs> taken my sandwich apart and they've filled it with this paper. And honestly, like, to, Jeff's no longer with us, the, the, the guy that, you know, the, he was like the godfather of the motor trade in Northamptonshire. What a lovely man he was no longer with us, but he, he used to laugh about that story for years. We'd tell it at dinner parties and stuff. Oh, it was so funny. And those two brothers, Paul and Andy, who played those practical jokes on me, guys, I'm going to get you back one day. You I'm going to get you back. 
I've, I've worked in the motor industry since I was 18, 19 years of age, and, and I still do now. I do consultancy work in it. And <laughs> I've got a lot of stories, <laughs> a lot of stories like that one, many that I can't tell on a podcast, um, <laughs> but a lot of stories out there. The, the automotive industry is a fun industry to work in in many, many ways, and we'll leave that right there. Okay, moving on. Sam Top, Sam Copley on Instagram when you're playing an event on tour, how important is the right amount of sleep when you're playing the next day? No, I mean it's it's vital, you know. As you know, up there with having your cue and and your chalk and your bits and pieces and taking the right suit and all that, you know, it's it's up there in the top five, isn't it? You know, I mean, you know yourself if you're up there at a tournament working, you know, sleep is it's one of those vital ingredients, isn't it? You can't do without it, and having a good night's sleep. Um, you know, is absolutely vital. Sort of as a step on from that, from a couple of players that I've been helping to mentor, you know, I'm mentoring uh, young Stan Moody at the moment, really trying to help him in his journey to the tour. And obviously everyone knows my nephew, Joshua Cooper, has been, you know, ploughing his own journey to the tour as well. He plays in Q School and Q Tour and got to within a couple of games of the tour a few seasons ago. Um, you know, it's very, very important to get these sleep patterns right. And if you play in a, you know, a 10 o'clock match at the Crucible, for instance, you know, how often do professional snooker players hit balls at 10 o'clock? You know, not, not often, uh, you know, and you need to learn how to, you know, get yourself to bed, get yourself to sleep, have that refreshing night, get up, get ready and all the rest of it. Stuff that you don't really run into as a day-to-day snooker player. Um, it's vitally important. And then, of course, you jump on a plane and fly, fly eight hours east to China. Now you're jet lagged and you've got to get up at ten in the morning. Um, now, now, now sleep becomes important. Of course, everyone will remember the very famous story: Mark Selby getting it completely <laughs> wrong with his sleep, uh, playing at two thirty in the afternoon, and at one a.m. was stood fully dressed, ready to go in his dinner suit in the hotel lobby. Didn't know what day it was. <laughs> That's classic. So, yeah, yeah, classic. Quite important. Absolute classic. That 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 Mark Selby story, by the way, is an absolute belt. Yeah, one o'clock in the morning, suited and booted with his cue, all ready to go to the practice room. No, Mark. It's the middle of the night. Anyway, Sean. Not Mark. Back to bed. Uh, MUFC fan 8974. Oh, just a second. What was that name again? MUFC fan. So we're getting tweets from Manchester United fans. Do we even read these ones out, or do we just eliminate them straight away, or how does that work? Uh... Shocking. Well, I, I think it's taken it's taken you know eleven or twelve episodes, but the the, the United fans have finally come out in my defence. Oh dear! If we go back to episode one or two. You were absolutely slagging me about being a plastic fan. <laughs> now, now here he is, MUFC fan eight nine seven four. Where do you both think Neil Robertson ranks on all time list of players, and is he above or below Judd Trump? Oh, that's a great question. That 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 in snooker terms, I mean, it's a serious snooker question, but that is a great question. Do you want to go first, or shall I? Jeez, not really. No. What do you think? You go first. I'll, I'll go first then. Right. Where does... these two these, these two lads tend to operate at the end of events, so you'll have seen more of them recently than me. <laughs> this is very true. Right, Neil Robertson. Where does he rank on all-time list of players? He's comfortably in the top ten. Neil Robertson is comfortably in the top ten of all time. He has to be. You look at the results he's had. You look at what he's won. He has to be comfortably in the top 10 whereabouts in the top 10 look that that's that's a long conversation but he's comfortably in the top 10 is he above or below judd trump personally at the moment i've got him above judd trump they've, they've both got 23 ranking titles 
Neil's got, I think, one world and three UKs. Um, I just think he's won more of the bigger events. Will Judd end up above Neil? Possibly. Quite possibly. However, Neil is still at that level as well. You know, I think he's been a, a pro for, I think, five years longer than Judd, I think, off the top of my head. Um, so he's had five more years at it. I think Judd, Judd could challenge him in time for, for where they are in the all time. At the moment, I've got Neil comfortably in the top 10 and above Judd. Do you want to comment on that one, Sean, or not? Um, only to say I would probably agree with you. I, I think I would agree with, with pretty much everything you've said there. Um, of course, I'm playing Neil. We drew each other to play each other at the Masters. We're going to be opening the Masters in uh, in January there. He's a defending champion, of course. We've played at the Masters twice, both in finals. One year he beat me, the next year I beat him. So we've had some great matches. Had some great matches with both of them, I have to say. Um the the only thing that would tip it for me slightly in Neil's favour is that he has just a slightly more textbook technique, which I think, you know, perhaps when you're under the utmost pressure, when that intensity, when that fire burns brightest, his technique might stand up that little bit more than Judd's. Apart from that, I would say they're almost inseparable. Yeah, time, time, time will tell. Let's just go with that one. Okay, right. The Mariners Torquay, who, who tweets a lot uh, on Twitter, is it time to stop playing dead frames? As happened in the mixed doubles, they're pointless. Right now, the mixed doubles for me that was a, a special event, um, and it was a special format. Yeah, I'm not a fan of dead frames, but do you know if you look back, you look back to the history of the World Championship. And there were world championships played where there were days of dead frames played, weren't there? And I mean days, days and days and days of dead frames played at the end of matches. That doesn't happen now. You know, it's very, very rare you get dead frames played. Um, it's only in the odd event like that. I don't see it as a massive problem when it is a, a special event, Joe. No, I think I think there's I think somewhere in here though, I think there's a, a decent point, which is in terms of the frames itself. Uh, you know, often you often you can look at a frame and you know that frame is dead. And we're straying off the point slightly here. Instead of dead frames, I'm talking specifically about a frame that you know player B is highly unlikely to win. I think there's a conversation that needs to be had soon with the powers that be about you know when a player is so far ahead in a frame, be it three, four, five snookers down the line, the frame's over. Oh, I, I disagree wholeheartedly on that. Disagree massively. If if a player wants to fight a frame out, it's, it's his right to fight that frame out. And we've seen players come back from five, six snookers. So if we've seen players come back from five, six snookers behind and win a frame, why why rob them of the opportunity to win a frame? They can quite rightly win. I'd, I've, I've got to disagree with you on that. I think dead frames, dead frames at the end of a match that, that don't need playing, yeah, in the odd weird event, maybe, you know, whatever. It's, it's not a major thing. But on the snookers thing, I think if a player thinks he can win a frame, then he then he carries on for me. I, you know, you, you've seen players do that, five, six snookers behind. I think Neil Robertson's done it. Yeah, no, I have seen it. Uh, and on a very rare occasion, it does happen. I mean, there's footage on your, on, on YouTube floating around of, of, of John Spencer chasing Jimmy White down for eight or nine snookers, you know, and he gets them and he yeah. wins the frame. You know, Jimmy starts knocking balls off the table and all sorts. Um you know, so I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's not possible. I just think, for me, like, where where else in sport do we see that? You know, you know, and and I just think, 
for me, it sometimes strays into the like I'm a I'm a complete purist about. It. I, I love chasing down for snookers. I, you know, I'll stand there all day, try you know, <laughs> to, to try and do it. But I think we have to remember that we're in the entertainment industry, and often, as again, you know, we're the snooker podcast that's not a snooker podcast. Often, those that aren't natural fans of the sport tune in at the wrong time and might find themselves drifting off to something else. Uh, now, some people say, well, they're not the people we want watching snooker anyway. Others will say snooker could be for everybody if it perhaps just shaped itself in a, a slightly different manner. I think there's a conversation to be had there. Um, nobody wants to watch a player chasing four or five snookers, do they? Do they? I don't mind it. I, I actually quite enjoy that. If, if you know, if there's, if there's a chance they're going to get it, if the player's playing it, they clearly think there is a chance they're going to get it. So I don't know. But anyway... What do you think? What do you think at home? At 147pod on social media, what do you think? Should should it be four snookers, five snookers, six snookers, frame over, whatever? Should it be that? Or are we fine as we are? Let's move on to darts, though, Sean. Matt Pickles on Twitter. What's his question? Would you like to see multi-session matches like we have at snooker? Best of 25 set world final would be brilliant and more befitting of the half a million pound prize to the winner. Yes. Well. Yes. I, I say yes. yes. Right. Okay. Well, like mean, an afternoon and evening or something. Yeah, absolutely. An afternoon and evening. Um, <clears throat> purely, purely because I happen to know most darts players have a drink before they play. And I would love to see one of those darts players play an afternoon, then the evening session as well. Because <laughs> I think it would be you brilliant. Have have You'd have to have the hockey surrounded by trampolines. <laughs> In case they fell off, they just bounced straight back up. No, do you know, I, I think Matt Pickles on Twitter has got a point. It is half a million pounds for winning the World Championship, and I, I think a best of 25 set world final would be fantastic. I would love that. But we've just been talking about dead rubbers. What happens if one player starts to run away with it? You could end up with a very, very short evening session, as sometimes happens in the snooker, and would people then feel a bit left out? Or would they just do what they do, go to darts anyway, and just keep on drinking and have a big party? I don't know. Well, it's the reason the UK Championships move from best of 17s to best of 11s. It, that, that is the reason, is that people, you know, when canvassed, when opinion was taken, this was taken through all sorts of different genres and routes, people got tired of tuning in and not seeing a result. They would tune in for the aperitif, and they wouldn't see somebody win or lose. And it was felt that the culture had changed and people wanted to tune in. The World Championships, you can tune in and follow the story of a frame and a match and a session. It was felt that people wanted to tune in and see a result. Subsequently, the best 17s that have been here since, you know, God was a lad, uh, became best of 11s. Yep. And, 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 that's the way it's, and that's the way it's been since. Um, and I think it's probably here to stay. So there you go. Right, I'm I'm going to move us on a little bit on these questions. We, we've had a lot of questions in. Any questions we don't get asked today, which there will be quite a few, we will hold over. We will try and get as many in on the next one as we can. So we have had a certain Mr. Sam Craigie on Facebook. Sam has asked, has Sean accepted that his walk-on music is second best yet? Yes, it is. And Amanda from the Snooker Goths, thank you for my Christmas present, Amanda, by the way. If you could have a live band playing walk-ons, who would you choose? Okay, first of all, Sam Craigie has the best walk-on music in snooker. Have you accepted that yours is second best yet? I, 
I can't let you say that. I, I have to. I have to fight my corner here, Amanda. I will say as well. Thank you for my Christmas present. I did say this at the time. I put it on my Insta stories. It was so lovely of you to say you were going to send me something, and you did. You turned up to Edinburgh with it. It was very, very nice of you. Thank you so much. Back to Sam Craigie. <laughs> I'll say two things. Anyone who thinks his walk-on music is better than mine, frankly, needs their head testing. Anyone who thinks anybody's walk-on music beats Disco Inferno is is borderline crazy. All civilised people agree that my walk-on music is the best. The second thing I'd say about Sam, and Sam, I'm talking to you directly here, Sweet Cheeks, is that I'm sure if you'd sent this message in after your walkout from the Scottish Open, you'd be more interested in music to walk off stage to than music to walk into the stage to. You cannot help you, the walkout. You What's can't help yourself, can you? Wow. Sam sends us a nice message like that and you can't help yourself. <laughs> go. Sam, I think the answer to your question is no, he hasn't <laughs> accepted it. Go on then. Amanda from the Snookos. By the way, Manda from the Snookos hasn't been very well. She's had COVID recently. I hope you're feeling better, Amanda. We really do hope to see you in Brentwood at the English Open next week. If we could have a live band playing walk-ons, who would you choose? Queen. Okay. The end. You? I'm going Jules Holland and his band because they can play all sorts oh. of things. Oh, you're right. They can you're play right. all genres of music and they're brilliant. You're right. What a mistake I've made there. So, and I watch the Hootenanny every single year. For me, Jules Holland, I am generally right. You know this. I know Amanda would say the Manic Street Preachers um, because they're a favourite band. I know that for a fact. But no, Jules Holland and his band. Jules, Jules Holland is the right answer. Yeah, Jules keep... Holland is the right answer my absolute hero Jules right Holland. well we go from sam craigie who's a professional snooker player to another professional who we know very well who's asked us a question on twitter and i've promised to ask this one so john mcdonald the legend that is john mcdonald the the mc from the darts and many other sports he asked a question on twitter that he asked me of you when i bumped into him in mine head the other week is sean going to parachute for the wonderful charity future pathway in March. Sean Murphy? I just don't think I can. I just don't think I can do it. Oh, man up, Murphy. Come on. I, gen- I genuinely don't think I can do it. We This debate happens every year when I'm a celebrity comes on and you see the celeb jumping <laughs> in out of a helicopter and they're jumping out of planes. And I chatted to Steve Davis about this in York because I knew John was out there asking me this question. He messaged me on Twitter, and I just didn't go back to him because I was hoping he'd leave it. I just, I would love to, but I just I just don't think I could do it. Could you do it? Genu- genuinely now, could you jump out of a an object at 14,000 feet strapped to some fella you don't know? Could you do it? I'm not a massive fan of heights, okay? I'm not a massive fan of heights. However, I happen to know that the Future Pathway charity that that John McDonald is heavily involved in is a wonderful charity. It's a wonderful cause. And personally, I think for a cause like that, quite possibly, which is why I can't believe you're going to chicken out of that, Sean, to be honest. I think it's quite disgraceful. I'll tell you what. Don't go there. Do not go there. I know where you're going. Don't go there. Tell you what I'll do. No. You do it. I'll do it. Oh, you're going there. I thought, oh, I thought you were going to say something else there. 
What did you think? I thought, I thought you were going to say, right, I'll sponsor you however many thousand pounds oh. to do it. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Well, well, that's, out, that's out there in the ether. Hey, though, well, we'll, do it, we'll do it together. Well, us two in tandem, doing, I'd rather do it with someone that knows what they're doing, to be honest, yeah, Sean. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean that. Let me say that back. Let me reverse. Me and you tied together with a parachute. Let's not try yeah. that. That's madness. Let's do it at the same time <laughs> with two people who know what they're doing. Yeah, you're a complete and utter lunatic. Right, one more listener question, which I'm going to pick, because you've just mentioned I'm a Celebrity. Grant Lorimer on Facebook. On I'm a Celebrity, what would you fear most... What food or animal body parts would you dread eating? And what food would you miss most when in there? So, what would you fear most in the jungle, Sean? Snakes. For me, it's rats. Hate rats. Absolutely hate rats. So, sorry for people that love rats out there. I don't like rats. I mean, are there any people out there who like rats? Oh, there are. No, no, there are rat lovers out there. There are rat lovers out there. Yep. And, and, you know, brilliant. They wear shorts in December. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. And camouflage trousers and high-vis jackets. What food or animal body part would you dread eating? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I would destroy that challenge. Yeah, eating challenges, not a problem at all. You know, it's, yeah, I've eaten kebabs, so you'll eat anything if you eat one of those. And what, <laughs> <laughs> speak to Willow, what food would you miss most when in there? Now, that's a big one for me. Roast potatoes and gravy. Oh, wow. Nice. I yeah. I don't think mine would be fair. I think mine would be a beer, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise drink was allowed. A, a no, beer it, or a Jack it, Daniels. But, but was... um, yeah, what food? I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, don't mind a bit of chocolate, but I'm not massive on it. But I'm not sure. It probably more drinks and food, I think, for me. But I'm not sure. But anyway, doesn't matter. I'll never be going on there. Right. There are loads and loads of questions that we have not got round to. We asked you for questions. You've given us lots of questions. We will... We've had so many questions. Oh, we've had a ridiculous amount. So we will keep hold of the ones that we've got. So Richie G, Jonathan Wallace, Nile Greenfield, Scott Brookens, Peter Jones, David... I can't read them all. There's loads of them. We will we save them for future podcasts. We've got another one in two weeks. We'll save them for future podcasts. We must now move on to our pointless question then, which has been sent in... By a listener, John Schofield on Facebook has said, our pointless question this week, when you die, lovely cheery thought, John, thanks for that, for the end of the podcast. When you die, what animal would you like to come back as? Go on, Sean. Uh, Well, it would have to either be a Labrador, because, like, everyone loves a Labrador. And they generally have a good life. Don't they? Yeah. Or reindeer. Reindeer? Reindeer work once a year. <laughs> this is true, actually. This is true, they do. Have the rest of the year off, Phil. Yeah, that's that's that's. They not do a bad absolutely point. nothing for the rest of the year. Good shout. Yeah, that's that that is a really good shout. Personally, I'm going giant turtle. Purely because I think it'd be quite nice to live in the sea and they live for about 400 years, don't they? So you can live for a long time without dying, which I think is probably the main aim of life, personally. So, And do you think if you lived that long, you'd eventually come round to the way of thinking that my walk on music is the best walk on music? No. <laughs> I'd be a 350-year-old giant turtle going, CC rider, Elvis Presley, that Sam Craig comes on to is still better than Sean Murphy's walk on music. 
I'm just off to compose an email to the uh, WPBSA Players Association to ask us for some walk-off music <laughs> rather than walk-on music. Sam, get some music suggestions in for your walking out of the arena. It, it's quite simple. What they should do, the second, if any player walks out conceding a frame early, they should play step two and son as they leave the arena. Dun, 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 dun. Be brilliant. That would be I'll just someone's there ready to hit it. He's conceded. Dun, 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 dun. It'd be class. It'd be absolutely brilliant, and you know it would as well. That is pretty much the end of the podcast. So, what are you up to this week then, Sean? Obviously, English Open in Brentwood begins on Monday. Get your tickets for that from wst.tv forward slash tickets. New venue, Brentwood Centre in Brentwood in Essex down there. So, a brand new venue. You will be there. Who have you got first round? I think I've drawn the Sheriff of Pottingham. Oh, have you? Anthony Hamilton, yes. And I just have to take a step back here. I know it's a new venue for the tournament. It's actually the venue I made my TV debut in as an 11-year-old boy. Wow. What was that in? that Junior Pop Black or? So back in the day, Matchroom had their Matchroom League. Yeah. And uh, it was it was playing that night. Uh, down there in the Brentwood Centre. And one of the old commentators I've spoke about a couple of times on the pod, uh, Mark Wildman, was a good friend of Matt Rooms. He was commentating that night. He owned the club where I played in Rawns, Rawns Q Sports. And he asked Barry Hearn whether he had any chance of me going down to play a little frame of snooker. And as a 10-year-old boy, I got the chance to play the 17-year-old recent winner of the uh, UK Championships, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Wow. And I was 10 years of age. He was 17. And uh, we went out and played a game of snooker. And uh, I think I think he beat me on the pink ball. I could barely see over the side <laughs> of the table. He was the new star on the block. Uh, and there was a very funny moment. And I will just tell this story. I know we're going to get off the air, but I will quickly tell this story. Um, I had a cue we bought from a jumble sale. From the same jumble sale, uh, I had a waistcoat on that who knows whose waistcoat this had been, and um, my old granddad's dicky bow, and uh, a school shirt. I think that was that was my wow. that was my snooker outfit. And halfway through the frame, my dicky bow snap. No. So it sort of comes off around my neck, and it falls down my waistcoat a little bit. And when you watch it back, Mark Wildman's commentating with Barry Hearn. And the camera zooms in onto me as I'm looking thoughtfully over a shot, bearing in mind I'm 10, like I don't know what day it is. <laughs> and Barry tuned in and he said, well, isn't this a really great young player? He's read the rules from cover to cover because the rules do say that you have to wear a dicky bow, but they don't say it has to be around your neck. <laughs> and that was at the Brentwood Centre. And that was my TV debut at the oh, Brentwood Centre. Well, we are recording this on, on Monday, um, the 5th of December. So happy birthday, Ronnie O'Sullivan, by the way. He's 47 years old today. He's 47 the, today, birthday. The greatest player of all time. And I wished him a happy birthday yesterday before he uh, before he left Edinburgh. Um, so, wow. So, so you'll be there. You're playing the Sheriff of Pottingham. That starts next Monday. I will be there. From the Friday onwards, again, quarterfinals, semifinals, then final. I'll be there until the end, hopefully. So will Sean, we say. Wouldn't like to make any promises. 
Hopefully you'll be there. Now, before then, I'm, I'm working with Omid Jalili on Thursday night. That's exciting. The uh, top comedian, actor, writer, broadcaster, Omid Jalili, the uh, funniest Iranian in the history of Iran, I believe. Um, I'm working with him at dinner on Thursday night. That'll be fun. Um, you up too much this week? Practice? Just just practicing yeah just enjoying some time back at home and with the family and of course it's you know it's it's uh, the build-up to christmas decorated the house and the children are you know they get up every morning and see what the elves have been up to and what mischief those naughty elves have been doing uh, so yeah it's exciting here and the build-up to christmas it's magical with children it certainly uh, is yeah it's magical Absolutely. Well, we will be back in two weeks' time, the day after the final of the English Open in Brentwood. Will we see the moonwalk? That's the big question on everyone's lips. Hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, please leave us a rating, leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It all helps it spread across the world. And that's probably why people in India and Pakistan are listening to the podcast, which is still a bit weird. But you're all very much welcome. Sean, thank you very much. Good night. Good night. We shall see you again in two weeks' time. Thanks a lot for listening. That was the 147 Podcast with Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour. If you enjoyed what you've just listened to, make sure you subscribe, leave us a review, and interact with us across all forms of social media at 147pod. That's all words at 147pod. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.